had a baseball coach at, at UMS when I played baseball at UMS, and he was a retired military drill sergeant. He was a Marine drill sergeant, and he was our baseball coach. And if you upset him in any way, shape, or form, practice was over. I don't think he really cared that we won or lost baseball games. He just wanted all our little, all the little men under his regime to be very well sculpted and disciplined in everything we did. And we, we, I say we, some other guys on the team were cutting up in practice one afternoon during, during uh, infield hits. He was hitting the ball infield. And a bunch of guys weren't paying attention. And that was it. He lost his temper for a second and said a bunch of things that you're not supposed to say as a coach to anybody and got us all out on the football field and lined us up on the football field uh, lines and made us lay down. And we did push-ups and sit-ups for almost four hours. Just and, and he was just walking around. And like in the push-up, he would just be walking through. It's like in the movies when you see the drill, the drill sergeant walking around going up, down. And he'd, he'd leave you down. You'd be... You know, everybody's shaking, and he's yelling at people's names, and everybody's arms are giving out, and he just, and we did it all afternoon. I remember being so sore from that workout, I thought, tomorrow we can't throw a ball. There's no chance we're going to throw balls tomorrow. Our shoulders are killing us. But he just loved putting us through all that. And at the end of those practices, you just want to quit. You know why? Because it seemed unreasonable. It seemed unreasonable at times. Those practices, all those laps and all those wind sprints and all those sit-ups and push-ups seemed unreasonable. Will you say that word with me? It's a good word. We're going to learn it today. Unreasonable. I'll say it like you mean it. Unreasonable. All right. So it seemed unreasonable. Some some folks would eventually quit. Some of the ball players would eventually quit, especially in early season practices. You know, you get those guys that go out there and think they're all that, and then they realize, you know, while we're puking on the sidelines and running back in for sprints or whatever we're doing, they realize, I, I'm not – I don't want to do this anymore. You'd see them in the cafeteria. You know, next day after school, you'd see them in the cafeteria. Hey, you weren't in practice. Yeah, I quit. Why'd you quit? And they go, well, it seemed unreasonable. Coach was just unreasonable. You know, that was way too hard. It was unreasonable. And I remember all that. I remember how much I had to endure through all that. My brother and dad and whole family taught us that you don't quit, you just get through it. You just work through it. And we did. We worked through a bunch of that and, and uh, got through it all. But then I grew up. I started working at a church school. And uh, they had a soccer program. And they asked me to coach soccer one year because I'd played one semester of soccer in my high school years till I broke a toe, kicking a ball, which if you kick the ball with your toe, you're not a good soccer player anyway. So I broke a toe, and that was that. Couldn't play soccer through, through school anymore or run the drills that we did at soccer. But I became a coach, young coach. Didn't, I didn't even have kids back then, I don't think. I don't think I have any, had any kids when I was a coach of this little soccer team. You know what the first thing I did when we got all in the huddle? First thing I did to him, you know what I said? Guys, we're going to run some laps. And we ran laps. And then we're going to run some sprints. And I'm going to teach y'all what suicide drill is. And we're going to do up-downs. And we're going to do sit-ups and push-ups. You know, I had a different perspective as a coach. I had a whole different... Put my brother over there going, that's why I kill all them kids. I could. You have a whole different perspective as a coach than when you're a player, don't you? You sort of have to get outside the game for a minute. You have to get outside of what seems unreasonable to see something else that's going on. Andy Stanley in his book, Deep and Wide, I read that book, my, my family gave it to me for Christmas, and I, I read it over the last year, and it's a really interesting book about church life and their church growth, and Andy Stanley and his dad, uh, and all the years they had together, Char Brother Charles Stanley, 
Um, but he has this great quote that says, we have to get to, to deal with deep pain and suffering. We have to get outside of our circumstances. That's why I named the series, Go Outside. Just go outside. Remember when your parents used to tell you, you're driving me nuts. Just go outside. I don't know what parents tell their kids now. But used to, my mom and dad would kick us out of the house. Just go outside. You're driving us crazy. And we'd have to go outside. And we, we had to stay outside till it was dark or way past dark. Right? That's, that was how I was raised. Well, I want us to learn what it means scripturally to deal with affliction in that principle. Because that's an exact, accurate principle. And the song we just sang, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus, I mean, it's almost exactly the right concept that we need to have for this. So, first of all, we're going to talk about the, the language of affliction. And the things I want to share with you today, I want you to carry them to your mission field. Y'all are missionaries, right? We're just, everybody's a missionary. So you've got a mission field this week. You're going, to, you're going to interact with some people on your mission field and have a conversation with them. And I just want you to, in, your, in serving others, I want you to give them these truths. You can teach these truths to them. If you hear somebody that's going through a really hard time, you might just take them through a couple of these things you learned today. So we're going to talk about the language of affliction, and there's two words that the Bible uses to describe affliction. One is trials, and the other is temptation. They both get lumped into affliction, but really trials and affliction are exactly the same thing. In the Old Testament, when you read the word affliction, it's a trial. New Testament, when you read about affliction and trials, it's all the same thing. They're the same word. But then there's temptations that fit in with that sometimes. We feel like they're afflictions, and that you could sort of label it that way. But I'll show you the difference because they're crystal clear different in the Bible. It's important that you get this. First of all, trials are from the Lord. Yay, God, thank you. Trials are from the Lord. Run some laps, Stan. Do some sit-ups, Stan. Run the race. We're going to hear the message tonight. I know, I know I've already talked to Brother Robert tonight. He's going to bring a message uh, Brother Baker is going to bring a message on uh, run to win. And uh, we're going we're to learn how to endure those trials. Trials are from the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 5. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Or a drill sergeant marine disciplines his baseball team. Just know that the Lord's doing all of that. He's got you running the laps. He's got you running the wind sprints. He's got you in, in things that seem like you're almost out of gas and out of energy. And, and you're, you're going, wow, this is hard. Just know, Deuteronomy says. Moses says, just know that the Lord has you in all of that. And here's a verse you're going to hate. I'm sorry. But, you know, I believe in the whole counsel of Scripture. You don't skip anything. So we're not going to skip through some of this, and Cody's going to get to this. Cody and Jay are uh, working in the jo and through the book of Job with us and on Tuesdays, and it's really rich teaching. Uh, Cody's done a great job in chapter 1 and 2. And uh, Job chapter 16, verse 12, here's how Job describes his life. I was at ease, but he, now he's, he is referring to God, he shattered me. He grasped me by the neck and has shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target. When we were first married, Annette and I lived in a little house in Inslee, Alabama. My Birmingham friends know where Inslee is. It's not the place you really are supposed to live uh, if you want to stay safe. But we believed that all the criminals lived in Inslee and would go to other neighborhoods to rob people. So we felt safer there. And uh, it was also free because it was the youth pastor house. But we lived in Inslee. And uh, we had this little kitten 
We had two kittens, by the way, named Goober, and Goober had one and Goober had two, called Gooberhead. And uh, we went in one night after a banquet. We'd been out at a banquet at Alliance Christian, where I worked, and and I went into the I went into the uh, back of the house, and the little kitten was on the back porch, and he ran out the back door, and got out into the yard, and uh, a couple of German shepherds and a big box headed what are those uh, boxers, whatever it was just started chasing that poor little tiny kitten and got a hold of it and did exactly what this verse says. Kitten's in the mouth of the German shepherd and they're fighting over the cat and just shaking that cat till it popped its neck. Just done. And, and you know, then I'm like, well, baby, I let, I let the cat out the back. And so I actually killed two of our cats before we had a cat that lived and my wife thought something was wrong with the man she married at some point. <laughs> we had to work through that a little bit. But, but it was interesting because when I read this verse, I said, I remember looking out the back. I heard all the commotion. We went inside. Didn't know the cat went out up between the door. And, and then I heard all this commotion out back and all these dogs and, you know, and you look out the window and you're like, oh, and the dogs got the cat and you're like, oh my gosh. And I ran out there way too late. I ran out there. I don't know what I was going to do. But, but here's what Job says God did while he was at ease. Like kick back. Everything's good. Everything's really good. And God says, Job, actually, if we, we've studied this in chapter 1. God points out to Satan, hey, you can shake him and rattle him a little bit. and Put something to him, you know. Let's test him. Shake him to pieces. Put a target on Job's back. And Job knew by this chapter, God had picked him to go through that suffering. You know why? Because Job knows affliction comes from the Lord. And we've got to get a handle on that in our heads because there's a whole theology being taught now that God doesn't give trials or afflictions to anybody he loves. It's exactly the opposite. The ones he does love, he does give trials and he disciplines. Secondly, trials are part of your daily life. Your daily life. Matthew 6, 34. Love this verse. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Sounds like something Eeyore would say, doesn't it? That's a Pooh Bear Eeyore moment right there. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's exactly how Eeyore thinks, by the way. And a lot of my friends think that way. If you see the glass half empty, not half full, or like some of my friends, it's empty and it's got a, it's broken and it's got a jagged edge, and if you touch it, it's going to cut you. That's what they see the glass as. This is you. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And it does. This word trouble is the word we get trials from in the New Testament. John 16, 33, here's another phrase from Jesus. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. We're going to sing that song, Overcome, tonight. I hope you're here for the service tonight when we have that praise time. In this world, you will have trouble. Horrible teaching out there in, in Christian theology right now. A lot of people are being taught that once you come to Christ and if you really get your spiritual life correct and your faith life centered around Him, you will have no more trials or trouble. The Bible is exactly the opposite of that. Jesus says you are going to have trouble in this world, always, always. And it's interesting because I want those people that teach that, I, I'm not going to name names, but I want the people that teach that I want them to do a, a study, a character study, on like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. Or Peter. Or Mark. Uh, P Peter crucified upside down. 
for not stopping to preach, not stopping preaching the gospel, crucified upside down. His wife crucified ahead of him so that he would recant his faith and him having to watch his wife be killed and hold on to his faith. That sounds like a little trouble to me. And Peter's one of the greatest guys in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul's one of the best church planners anybody on this planet has ever known. Took the gospel to the far regions. But when you read his story, he was shipwrecked and had just terrible trouble. And he got chased out of town all the time. And people stoned him several times. He was beaten with lashes several times. He was locked in prisons and dungeons. And then he ends up his last years of his life in prison. Doing prison ministry. Not on purpose, but just because it's where he was. And he does prison ministry. And then they behead him. I don't know how you think about that, but that doesn't seem like a career that's going this way. His career kind of looks like it goes this way till you realize wherever he went, he planted seeds under his afflicted trials. He kept planting seeds that were just blooming like crazy. And people could see him in the trial loving God, in the trial serving God, in the trial honoring God, blessing God, saying, worthy is the one who brought all this on me. I just want you to meet Christ. And telling Timothy, we're going to endure hardship, Timothy, like a soldier, like a good soldier. He's the guy at practice that used to look at us all and go, man, come on, we can do this. We're going to endure this. Keep running those laps. Keep running those sprints. Paul was that guy. You're supposed to be that guy. You're supposed to be that girl that tells everybody, hang in there. You can endure this. So trials are part of your daily life. And then trials are important to us because they strengthen our faith. They help us understand God. They strengthen our faith. That's the whole point of a trial, by the way, is to draw you closer to God. Trials are meant to draw you to God. Draw you closer to God. James chapter 1 He says, when you face various trials, when you face various trials, count it all joy when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, patience, endurance, and when endurance has had its work, you'll be mature. It strengthens you to be a mature person. Nothing like when you're a coach working with mature athletes that have disciplined themselves in the locker room, in the weight room, on the athletic training fields, and in the drills. They've worked their drills really hard. You see those guys played in national championships. You go, man, that guy has worked out. And it's not just because of how he looks in his physical body. You can tell mentally he's worked out. Mentally he's trained himself. Mentally he's prepared himself for this place he's in so he can be used on a greater scale. And trials are meant to strengthen us so we can be used in a greater capacity. Be used by God. Now the key to a trial in your life, if you're going through a trial, says pretty much we're going to go through a trial every day, every week. You can pretty much count on them. Some of them may be little. Some of them may be really big. But if you're going through a trial, the key to it is to endure. That's what people through in trials do, is to endure the trial. James chapter 1, verse 12. Great verse. Blessed, the word means highly favored by God. Highly favored by God is the man that perseveres under trials. For once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Highly favored is the man that perseveres 
under trials. Just endure them. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on your the people around you that may be trying to give up. You be the guy on the field. You be the girl on the field that's saying, hey, come on, guys. We can get through this. It's going to be okay to get through this. Now that's, a, that's a little picture, a little tiny picture in the Bible of trials. If you have a good study Bible, you can look up trials in your study Bible and track a bunch of other great verses about trials. Or affliction is a good word to use for that. But I want to talk to you now about temptation because that's a different animal altogether, even though they get they link together in some ways, and I'll show you that. So he said that trials are from the Lord. Temptations are from the enemy, Satan. Satan is the tempter, and he brings temptation upon us. James 1 says, James 1.13, it's not going to show up here. James 1.13 says, never say God is your tempter, ever. He's your tester, but not your tempter. Because temptation is meant to draw you away from God, and a trial or a test is meant to draw you unto God. See, Satan is trying to separate you from God, and God's people, by the way, and and he wants you to get separated. He wants there to be division and strife and questions and confusion so that you separate yourself from God. That's what he did with Eve. But the enemy is the tempter. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. Y'all remember in the Old Testament, David had several notable sins. I'm glad the Lord showed them to us in the Scriptures so that we didn't think David was perfect because he is the greatest king Israel ever had. And the Bible says twice in the, in the Scriptures he's man after God's own heart. But it's nice to know he has some flaws, right? So in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, one of the things David was not supposed to do was count his people, really his armies. He wasn't supposed to number his armies. See, all the other nations did that. All the other nations say, we are a mighty nation. We have X number of chariots and X number of horsemen and X number of foot soldiers, and that's how we know we're mighty. And one day, David, just wandering around, went, hmm, wonder how many we got. Wonder if we're any, you know, because, I mean, they, at that time, the nation, Israel had gone from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. He'd pushed all the borders out. He had every nation on the edge of Israel Afraid of Israel, everybody stopped messing with Israel when King David took foothold and became the warrior that he was, the leader of the armies, the commander-in-chief. He said, you know what, you're not messing with us anymore. God is in the midst of this. And, of course, he took Goliath out, which started a nice ball rolling with that deal, and got everybody watching Israel and being wanting to make allies with them. And then one day David just got a little full of himself, honestly. Pride goeth before the... But look what it says. Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Satan tempted David, tempted him, and David fell to it. It wasn't David's idea originally. It was Satan. Satan planted a seed, got him thinking, got him wondering about all that. And next thing you know, he's numbered the people. And if you read the history of Israel right there, it doesn't go very well for a while. 1 Thessalonians, if you want to get a New Testament version of this, the Apostle Paul loves the Thessalonican church. Man, they are a superb little church, wonderful church. I love the church at Thessalonica. They trumpeted forth the gospel into all the regions around them. And Paul's trying to get back to see them, so he writes them a letter. Chapter 3, verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, it, it means he, I can no longer endure the absence I have with you. And he actually says just before this, I've tried to get to you, but Satan has hindered my path. It's a word that means he's put up a roadblock. I can't get there. 
I'm trying to come see you and something happens every time. Satan's hindered our path. He says, when I can no longer endure it, I also sent to find out about you. I wanted Silas and Timothy to tell me for fear that the tempter, Satan, might have tempted you and your labor would be in vain. Paul is worried that the church, that's us, might get tempted by Satan and our labor would be in vain because we would fall to temptation. Temptation pulls us away, away. I want you to see that in 2 Corinthians 11. I thought about this. These two verses came together for me in a little study I was doing right here. And uh, I've never seen this before. But in that last verse, but in that last verse, Paul says, I sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter. Paul has this anxiety fear happening in him about the people of God, about his church friends, about the, the believers at Thessalonica. He's worried about them, right? Here's another one of his fears, and I thought in my head, I've never thought about Paul being afraid of things. He just seems so solid. But look what he's afraid of. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, I'm afraid lest the serpent deceived, the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness uh, should deceive your minds and you would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. By the way, just so you know where your pastor is mentally uh, in his personal walk, that last little phrase, simplicity and purity of devotion, is very important to me these days. I just believe we're supposed to get simpler and simpler and simpler and stop making it complicated. It's not complicated to be devoted to Christ. And here's what the enemy wants it to be. The enemy, Satan, wants it to be complicated. He says, lest the serpent, by his craftiness, he wants to take your minds and lead you astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion. The enemy wants to lead you astray. So, what makes Paul fearful? That Satan's going to work a work of deception in, in the body of Christ. It makes him, he's like, man, I'm concerned that Satan's going to deceive you and trick you. And what's, what, is it, what, is, what is Satan going to trick you about? Exactly what's he going to do? Well, he's going to lead your minds astray from simple devotion. He's going to make it complicated. You're going to go, oh, I can't do all that. It's too much. Too hard. It's too hard. So we're tempted by Satan and pulled away from God. We're tested in our afflictions by God and drawn to him in those, in those testings. And the key to temptation, the key to a trial was to endure it, but the key to temptation is to resist temptation. James chapter 4 and verse 7. Let me make this real clear. When you're in a trial from God, stay in it. Stay under it. Endure it. Get your muscles built up because you're being strengthened. But when you're being tempted by Satan, you submit yourselves to God and you resist the devil. Resist him. Word that was used of Roman soldiers when they got their feet in the right stance to fight a battle. They literally would line up and lock their armors together and they would get very stable and get their feet just like it needed to be to be very stable when they were going to face a force coming at them. And that's what Paul said, that's what uh, James says we need to do when the enemy comes at us. Resist him, go, uh uh-uh, uh, you ain't coming in here, buddy. I'm resisting you. By the way, you have to resist with the word. The word of God's what helps us resist. And you got to have some word in you to get it. You got to be able to defeat the enemy with words, scriptural words, just like Jesus did. So we have trials and temptations. Now, I'm going to make another sentence here that might 
bring some of this together for you. Trials can be brought on and intensify when you fall to temptations. Okay, think about this. When you yield to a temptation, so you've you've not resisted it, but you've yielded to it now, you've given into a sin, part of your sin nature's satisfying some craving it has, you can now bring more trials on yourself by that. But it's just like, it's just like when you're the analogy is real crystal clear when you're when you were playing football or athletics and you were weak in an area and the coach realized you're not paying attention, son. Yeah, we were we were horsing around not paying attention during infield batting practice. Coach was like, we're going to solve that. We're going to all get out on those football field, and we're going to just do sit-ups and push-ups and run laps till you want to pay attention again. So we had we brought affliction on ourselves because we let temptation get to us and we stopped paying good attention, right? And that's what we do in our spiritual life sometimes. We can let affliction come into our lives. We bring on more affliction because we don't deal with temptation well. 1 Kings 11, verse 4 Solomon was known for his wisdom and his, Solomon was known for two things, his wisdom and his, starts with a W, wives. (laughs) His wisdom and his women. If you study Solomon, two big categories for Solomon. He had a lot of wives and a lot of wisdom. I have no idea how those two go together, by the way. Seems like a really dumb plan. It's just me talking out loud. So not that my wife's a dumb plan. My, My one wife's the perfect plan for me. But it seemed like if you had a bunch of those, Come on, guys, just give me a little help here. It seemed like you had a bunch of those, you'd be an idiot, right? That's incredible. But Solomon had all these wives. Now listen to what happened at the end of his, at the end of his leadership as king. Here's the verse, 1 Kings 11, verse 4. It came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from God to other gods. See, all his wives were from all these foreign lands. A bunch of them were given to him, by the way, by other kings because he was the wisest and wealthiest king in the land. Everybody goes, hey, you can have our wives. You can have all these women. So he just had these harems, one just giant harems. And Solomon let the them turn his heart away. He let, he let this temptation become a greater affliction. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. Remember what Satan wants to take, you, take away from you is your devotion to the Lord. Your simple devotion. Solomon was not wholly devoted to the Lord, uh, his God, uh, the way David, his father, had been. So trials are designed to draw us uh, to God, and temptations are designed to draw us away from God. Now here's the part I really want you to get there. That was just a little lesson in trials and afflictions. We're going to be talking about them for the next couple weeks. So you kind of separate them out in your head. By the way, both are hard. Temptations are hard to deal with. And trials are hard to deal with. Neither one are easy. But here's what I want to want you to get real crystal clear with me this morning. God filters the trials and temptations of our lives. Every single one of them is filtered by God. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Job. I'm going to borrow from uh, my brother Cody's teaching. When he was teaching through this lesson, I was making very extensive notes. Probably thought I was not paying attention. I was working so hard down there, but I just, when I saw this in this text, I was like, man, this goes perfectly with what the Lord's showing me about trials. And you guys know the story of Job. He's the, by God's own compliments, he's an upright and righteous man, maybe the most righteous guy on the planet at the time. Um, God gives him an incredible compliment in verse eight, but it doesn't mean because he's doing great 
Remember he said in Job 16 he was at ease? <laughs> doesn't mean because he's doing great with God, it's not going to make it hard. And God calls, Satan comes into the throne room of God and they have a conversation and God calls out Job's name. God calls out Job's name because have you thought about testing Job? <laughs> like to see you do that one, Satan. Why would God do that? Listen, because he knows Job can handle it. Job will give glory to God no matter what you do to him. So squeeze him, shake him, hurt him. He will give glory to God. So you know, Job chapter 1, verse 12, Satan and God are having this conversation. Verse 11, But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. God, Satan says he'll curse you to your face. And, and here's what here's what God says to Satan. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is yours in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. God drew a line right there. said, here's the limit you can do to him. This is the limit. God's setting the limit, not Satan. God. We serve a sovereign God who knows us. He knows how you're doing in your workouts and your training. He knows how your, your afternoon sprint spiritually are going. He knows how your devotions are going. And he's not going to put something on you you can't handle. So he sets a limit. Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. He sets another limit. Verse 6. Let me read that one to you. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. This is where Satan said, Hey, you never touch his physical body. If he starts getting sick... If he starts getting really, really, really sick, he'll hate you. God goes, no, you can touch his whole body. That's fine. Only spare his life. You can make him sick almost to death, just not death. If you're in that class, everybody knows what I think that was, by the way. Job had shingles. I had that, about this time last year, I had shingles, and it meets every description they give of that whole concept right there. He had a really bad case of the shingles. But here's the thing. Job was in tremendous pain and he never failed to worship and glorify God. It says in all this he didn't sin and he gave glory to God. Even when his wife says to curse God, he didn't. He did not curse God. He understood he needed to see things from outside of his affliction. So we'll get to that. Let me look at first let me get you to look at 1 Corinthians 10:13 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Fantastic verse. No temptation. Now we're back to temptations. Job had trials that brought on temptations, but here's specifically temptation. Verse 13, chapter 10 of Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you, but such it's common to man. Everybody goes through the same mess. Three words, very important, right in the middle of the verse. Little simple sentence. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to, last two words, endure it. You cannot be tested beyond your abilities. You will not be tempted beyond your abilities because God is filtering it all. He is filtering it all. Major truth. 
You cannot be in adversity or a trial that God has not allowed or enabled. You can't be in one. You say, well, what if I sin? Well, this is about temptation. <laughs> He's not going to put you in that situation where you can't handle it. And the only way to endure adversity and trials and temptation is to get outside of yourself. If you look at these guys that we're talking about, Job in particular, he had to go outside of his pain and see things from a whole nother vantage point. He had to see it from above. He had to see it like a coach, not a player. He had to see it like a ruler and a king, not a servant. And he had to go, I get the picture now. And Job had the ability to do that because God helped him have the ability to do that. When you're facing great adversity and huge trials, enormous temptations, you cannot solve the problem yourself. Here's a real problem I see with believers today. Men are real bad about this, but I've seen women do it too. You just try to fight through it yourself, all by yourself. You try to fight through some terrible, hard situation all by yourself. And you're not meant to do that. You know what the body of Christ is for? It's to come alongside you when you're in tremendous pain. Oh, my shingles are killing me. <laughs> tremendous pain. And you, you have somebody come alongside and go, Hey, God's going to get you through this. And while I'm in pain, I'm going... Gonna get me through this. God's gonna get me through this. Years ago, when I broke my leg uh, on a sea dew, nineteen ninety three, I broke my leg on a sea dew, laying up in the hospital. Never been on the inside of the bed rails of a hospital. Was there for five days with orthopedic surgery and a steel plate and screws and all kinds of stuff that makes my ankle stable on my foot now. The bones are all connected through that plate. It's going through just a miserable time. I had a little encounter with my son Josh who wrote me a letter while I was in the hospital and I've read it to you before I'm not going to read it to you today but you know what it said I don't know why God's doing this but I know God's got this it's like six years old seven years old he wrote this incredible little letter to me that just took me while I was in my hospital bed in tremendous pain trying to figure out what in the world's happening my son you know the, the wisdom of a child that loves God just said hey think outside that box Think outside that box. That's what we have to do. You have to go outside the problem and see it with Christ's eyes. That's what Job does. Job chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Everybody around Job going, Job, you've lost everything. You've lost everything. You've lost everything. Shaves his head, rents his clothes, falls down face first in the dirt in front of his hut. It's a really nice house. He falls down face first and he says, nothing about Job. Nothing about Job in his sentence does he say. He speaks only of God because he was outside his trial. Inside his trial, he lost all his children and his heart is broken. And he just has to rent his clothes in so much emotional pain. But when he speaks to God, he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He talks about God. You have to be outside yourself to get that. You have to have help to see that. Job 2, verse 20. Job's wife, just curse God and die. It's, it's time we just curse God and die. I'm in so much pain. Nobody can blame her. She's lost all her children. There's graveyards in her backyard that are all of her family. Just him and Job now, and Job's all sick. 
he's can't touch him, by the way. And the, the study uh, we're in, and Job says he probably had to go sit at the dump because he was so diseased and infected. Nobody wanted to get his infection. So he's sitting at the dump every day. He lives at the dump now. She's all by herself. Job, just curse God and die. Here's your, here's your food. Don't touch me. Just curse God and die. And here's what he says. Job 1, or Job 2.20. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? He's like, it's all coming from him. Please see him in this. He could continue to see God in the afflictions. Those are thoughts that are outside the natural mind, and it's how we learn to handle affliction. I don't know what your anxieties are, what your triggers are, what your fears, what your worries, um, what your trial is, what you're trying to endure. I just know that God can help you through it. So when trials and difficulties when trials are difficult and your emotional, physical, and spiritual pain levels get really high, I want you to remember this. Everybody look at me and get this real clear. I'll make you repeat it. The trial is not random. The trial is not random. The affliction is not wrath. God's not pouring out wrath on you. He doesn't do that. The trial's not random. The affliction is not wrath. And the pain is not unreasonable. What was that word that we said at the beginning? What was that word? The, the trial is not random. The affliction is not wrath. God hasn't forsaken you and dumped a bunch of wrath on you. And the pain is not unreasonable. You can feel like it's unreasonable. Did it all the time through all of my athletics. Every single sit-up. Seems unreasonable. Wasn't unreasonable. Say it. I want you to say the trial is not random. Say it. The trial is not. Say it again all together. The trial is not random. The affliction is not wrath. Try that. The affliction is not wrath. The pain is not unreasonable. Say it out loud. The pain is not unreasonable. Tell your neighbor. Tell your neighbor. Pain's not unreasonable. Come on. Now you look back at your neighbor and go, you don't know what pain I'm in. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. It's easy to do that if you're inside yourself, though, isn't it? You don't know how I feel, man. It is unreasonable. No. Look at Job. Look at Paul in prison, about to have his head cut off, having joy. Because he goes, this isn't unreasonable. It's momentary light affliction that's going to bring glory. It's for the glory of God. It's storing up treasures for us in heaven. The trial is storing up treasures. So let me give you a couple of carryouts, and I want to give you a verse from Psalm 13. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 13 uh, when you jot down these carryouts. Spend a few days this week, please do this, contemplating your most recent trials. Everybody in this room, because I know all of you. Yep, all of you. Everybody in this room has had some trials recently. Spend a few days contemplating your trials and think about how God helped you through that. Somebody gave you a word of God to help you. You heard a song on the radio that was inspirational. Uh, somebody just, just patted you on the back at the right time. Somebody helped you. God, God sent the right scripture to your you version verse just popped up in your face, right? However that is, just think about it this week. Meditate on how God helped you in your difficulty because he filtered that difficulty. And then I'd encourage you to journal a couple of prayers this week. Write them down full of thanksgiving to God 
for helping you see past yourself and through him. When you're in a trial and you see past yourself and see him, that's him. That's all him. He's getting you outside of your mess, outside of you, and making it about bigger stuff, right? So what would that look like? Well, Psalm 13 is a great picture of this. And I'm just going to read you the first verses and the last verse. Psalm 13, listen to King David. He's praying for help during his trouble. And he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? <laughs> that one sounds good, doesn't it? You think he's inside or outside? Say it. Inside or outside, that verse. He's inside. How long, O Lord? How long? Will you forget me forever? Let's just testify. Anybody felt that way before? Oh, yeah. Come on now. Don't lie. It feels like sometimes he's just, he forgot all about me. Remember me, Lord? <laughs> Start your prayer. Remember me, Lord? How long, oh, Lord? Now look at the last two verses. Verse 5. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, inside or outside. He's outside again. He's seeing God. Verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I will sing because he dealt bountifully. Wait a minute. What, what was that how long, O oh Lord, thing? He got his head together. And he went, wait a minute. I'm in a trial. Feels like you're forsaking me. But I trust in you. I'm back outside. I trust in you. I can do this. And I can even sing to you in the midst of my trial. Amen? That's what it means to go outside. We're going to learn some more this month of how to go outside to trust in His loving kindness. And I would really encourage you to journal some of that in your life.